1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Gargi, and today I have with me Professor Neil Ten Cortanar, who teaches uh, at the Department of English at the University of Toronto. He has taught in Nigeria, Nicaragua, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Uganda, among others, um, and he uh, researches uh, and teaches Caribbean, African, and South Asian literature. Hello, Professor Cortanar. How are you today?
1: Uh, I'm very well. Thank you. How are you, Garagi?
0: Thank you. Uh, Let me begin by the title of this book, which is Debt, Law, Realism. And in some ways, I thought that this represents the three pillars on which the argument of the book stands. And I would like to talk a little bit about all of the three, but we could go one by one. as a literature student, I am often confronted with realism, and this is what I'm going to take up first. Um, and as far as I have uh, read and understood realism, um, mm-hmm. it has um, it has been taught that uh, it, it, this is a particular literary movement which is associated with specific literary and cultural contexts in parts of Europe when it develops. Um, what is the relevance of studying realism uh, when we are uh, examining literary movements in post-colonial and colonial West Africa?
1: Uh, I like that question. Um, Let me say that there is a lot of realist writing from Africa, so it needs to be explained. Uh, So that's where I start from, is how to explain African literature. So uh, I don't start from Realism must be foreign, or realism must be outdated, or realism must be uh, too traditional, or realism must be what we need. I don't start with any prescription. I just start with, hey, there is a lot of realism. There was at the beginning of the African novel, and the Nigerian novel in particular, and there continues till today to be lots of realism. Realism might even just at this moment, be the dominant mode of African literature. So, it needs to be explained. Why is it so attractive? What what is the attraction? Uh, it must be similar, I think, to the attraction of realism when it developed in Europe. Doesn't mean it's the same thing, but it is something to keep in mind. When and where is realism attractive, and to whom is it attractive? And it's in trying to explain the realism in in. In Chinua Chebe in particular, in a, the first generation of West African writers, not all of whom were realists by any means, not Tutuola and not Shunike, but still, there was a great deal of realism, and Achebe most notably wrote realism. So I wanted to explain that, and, and I thought it cannot be a coincidence that that realism is attractive when you are creating a literature for a new state, uh, and in researching both the realism, but also those other questions that are in my title of the law and of debt, it seemed to me that that there is a lot of thought given. It doesn't even have to be at a conscious level, but at some creative unconscious level, some creative imaginative level, a lot of thought given to what a new state needs in terms of literature. And my argument in the book is that realism does, does different things. One thing that I am not considering is the way realism names a world. It names, uh, the food people eat, the clothes people wear, how people speak, the way they gesture, the way they behave. Uh, there's all kinds of detail, social, cultural detail in a realist novel that is meant to document, meant to, meant to spark a kind of recognition in readers, Hey, I know what that is. I recognize that and to see. A, a world that's very known. Oh, I know exactly what kind of houses those are. A world that's very known given the dignity of literature. But that's not actually what I'm talking about. I would say that's the nationalist impulse but in, in literature. What I'm talking about is a different aspect of realism, which is the way people are assumed to be explicable. They're explicable in terms of psychology. They're explicable in terms of sociology. And the inner and the outer are intimately related. So uh, why people think and feel the way they do is a function of the society and the times that they are living in, and in turn reflect on that society and those times. And so the way that characters are readable is, of, is uh, something that's true of realism, I think. Again, it's not the only thing that's true, but it's something that's true of realism. The way that characters are intended to be readable to readers as if they were people in the reader's own uh, milieu, uh, just as readable. In fact, actually more readable because of course, most people we know, we uh, let's say people we know, we don't know, we don't have access to their thoughts. We don't, we, we, we write characters for them in our heads, but we don't have access to their thoughts. Whereas realist novels present people with um, as if we knew them better than the people we actually know. So they, they assure you people are knowable, you can understand them, you can explain them in terms of sociology or psychology and inner and outer. Uh, and I relate that, that knowability of characters, to uh, a function in the modern state where in fact one lives with strangers and one assumes that in fact you know how people will behave, at least... You know how drivers will behave. You know how uh, uh, companies will behave. You, you know that if you uh, line up in the queue, the queue will move forward. You know there's a certain kind of pattern of behavior that you can trust, and that trust is um, fostered by and relied upon by the modern state, that that strangers know how to deal with each other. They're, they're, they're not surprised by each other. That knowability uh that realism also promises i related to a function of the modern state and i think these realist novels are very fascinated by so what would it mean to have a modern state because that's what we've got 1960 nigeria gets independence it has a state and it and there is a desire for a state and so uh what would it mean and that's what i think the realism comes in just a caveat there's always of course uh, suspicions of realism and knowability—always, <laughs> uh, uh, at every point in every literature, uh, anti-realism or uh, uh, unrealism—and that's true of Nigerian literature too. Still, I think the realism needs to be explained. It's not self-evident. It's not—we uh, don't already know what it means. It needs to be explained, and and that the explanation I've given is the one that relates it to the modern state.
0: Yeah, and uh, you've also mentioned in the book that. Uh, the West African authors are redefining what realism would mean to them, if I've understood correctly. So, what is this new realism? Um, so, I, I would put it a bit differently. I would say West African
1: writers teach us what realism is and then make you think of, oh, the realism you thought you knew from European literature, from Balzac and George Eliot or so, uh, is different than you thought so so um i i don't necessarily mean that the realism in africa is entirely different or is uh what i mean is actually if you think about the realism in africa it makes you think oh this is what realism does and then to understand realism elsewhere differently uh so instead of thinking well realism did this in europe it must be doing the same thing or it must not be doing the same thing in africa start with realism in Africa and just ask what it's doing, at least what it's doing in, in the time around 1960 in Nigeria, what it's doing. And then that illuminates realism elsewhere where people are maybe doing some of the same things and we haven't quite picked up on it. I think, um, well, I think this point that I'm making that realism is associated with the knowability of strangers and the fact that people can be predicted is not always what's highlighted with realism. It's something that I found in African literature, and then and then looking back, I think, well, actually, that, that is also true. Like, I think there's ways in which African literature can illuminate Balzac. Uh, um, so again, I'd, I'd say I'm starting the other way around, like saying, what, what is it, what's African literature doing? And then in what way is that true of realism elsewhere?
0: Okay, And as you've pointed out, there is this, See disengagement with um with European ideas, philosophical and political, um, which is starting from early modernity, and you have examples, and then going past realism. For example, winter well, Walter Benjamin comes up in the book, um, and I was I also found it interesting that you had francophone novels around these ideas. There was preem there was Hindi novels in this. Is this is this meant to be a comparative analysis or a comparative understanding of West African anglophone literature, or was not that was not the intention of the book?
1: Um, yes, I, I so deep down that is the intention. Deep down, I think you can't understand anything without comparing it to something else. So, uh, if you one thought about African literature in entirely self-sufficient terms. You, well, you would understand something. But it's more—it's very useful to compare English to French, uh pre-colonial to the colonial, or Africa to Europe. To always have things to compare it to is very, very useful, very illuminating. I think it makes it clear, for instance, in what ways African literature is different. And then that makes one think: well, so why, why is African literature this way? European literature this way? Uh, what? Um, it illuminates both um and so I think so deep down the the instinct to compare is is very real. you're right to identify it um I, my pro I don't know if it's a problem. i I do a lot of close reading so i I would have loved to have um, more on French African literature. I would have loved to have made something african Indian in terms of comparison uh, but but My, I guess I also believe. So on the one hand, I believe comparison is really important. On the other hand, I really think questioning closely, close reading matters. And as a result, I expand what can be said. I give several chapters to Things Fall Apart, several chapters to Erog. So uh, I expand what can be said about a particular book. And then the comparison becomes, well, you might think about this in relation to the state in in France, or in relation to the first texts coming out of uh, the United States, Canada, and India. Uh, so you, you, so but I, I acknowledge that the the comparison feels a little bit one off. I, I bring in all kinds of other things, but they are just referred to, and that's uh, my problem of balancing. I the close reading. I actually need to explain this book, and it takes me a long time to do it with a larger frame.
0: Yeah. Um, And uh, coming back to something that you've already said, and which is actually also in the very first page of the book, is how Nigerian or West African literature in English concerns itself with teaching readers how to be citizens or exploring what citizenship is to be meant, and I'm quoting from you. Um, and I'm very interested to know why you used these expressions, for example, teaching or showing what it means, because to me it immediately underlines this, some kind of hierarchy, which which is assumed by the uh, writer uh, when you're talking about the readers, because the writer is teaching in some way. Is this, right. Right. Is this something that you wanted to bring out, or um, that was not? Bad.
1: Uh, I, I see. I see what you mean, and of course, Atibia has an article called "The Novelist as Teacher," which is about teaching Africans that their past was not just darkness. It was so. It's very much a case of the novelist uh, must share his knowledge with those who don't yet have it. Um, not, yeah. So I, I see where you, what you mean, uh, and I do do that, but but, but actually. In my own mind, I was countering a different argument, so I was not, instead of supporting that argument so much, I was trying to counter another one, which is a very strong one, which is that African literature, and West African literature in particular, is extrovert, meaning it's really addressed to European readers or Western readers. And and so, I I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think that, in fact, it's addressing African readers in the first instance and uh, it's about how do we, novelist and reader, all Nigerians, think about uh, the state, about the basis of your social trust, about how people deal with each other. How do we, novelists and readers, think about these things? So actually my own feeling was I was trying to counter an argument that that African literature and West African literature in particular is, is addressed to an extroverted outside audience uh, and instead, I, I my point is no, no. This is about um, speaking to fellow citizens about how do we, and I would stress the the we as opposed to the hierarchy. Uh, so the, how do we think about because it's the novelist trying to think about it uh, with readers. Yeah,
0: and and then that comes making making the characters transparent, the thoughts transparent as in like. It, Am I interpreting this correctly?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, so, so there is a certain kind of. You can have access to the way characters think. People, you can understand them, readers, uh, um, and you can therefore uh, judge them and figure out how things work. Um, um, that's the realism. Uh, so, so it's it's uh, it's not like traditional folk tales. It's not like. Um, a furu, a, no- a novel by Anna Florin Wapa. It's 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 a certain kind of uh novel that I'm arguing at Chebe was writing, which is it involved thinking about how are people related to each other? What's the basis of social trust?
0: Um and um we will now come to debt and I um absolutely like how um you used um the social examining socio economic realities in the post colonial and colonial Africa through debt um but my first question is about how do you see these links for example here we we are not just comparing literatures as we talked about we are also in between disciplines, so to say um mm-hmm. but, um I know this is a very cliche question, but then it is. Very important when we bring debt, which is a very economic reality, a very economic notion, into literature, is is how um, how do, how do how do we literary scholars go about um, bringing these concepts into our analysis? If you have any thoughts on that,
1: I have some thoughts. I don't know about if I have an answer exactly. I have some thoughts, which um, I deeply feel that literature. Can teach well, that that word you're raising. No, no, that literature has things to to that it can illuminate. That studying literature carefully and deeply can illuminate many things. It's it's worth studying, um, and I feel you have to start with the literature and, and just ask why is it written this way? What? And then when you have that basic question, all kinds of questions emerge from your writing, from your reading. That is. Uh, why? This is an obvious one that everyone has to deal with. Like, why is a the, the main character? thinks all apart since he is not so likable, deeply flawed. Uh, uh, he, he beats his wife and, and kills his son. So, what? What is that? Why, in a novel that is about a pre-colonial world giving way to a colonial world, that means to celebrate the pre-colonial world. Why is a conquer the main character? So there's. That's a very basic question. And there's all kinds of other questions at a a more micro level. And those questions need to be answered. And so I I started with, well, actually, Things Fall Apart starts with scenes of debt. It starts with somebody coming to call back a loan and someone taking out a loan. And these are contrasted scenes. And the contrast is based on how responsible are you as a debtor? Um, I started from the books, to tell you the truth. And and then thought, well, what do I need to know to explain this? And then I went to read about debt. Um, and it's, it's David Graeber's book that I found the most useful, and he sent me in many other places. places. But I started from the, the book and thought, well, what do I need to know to try to explain this? Went and started reading about debt, which then set me to reading about political philosophy. And I thought, oh, actually, what I'm reading about illuminates the book, I think. Uh, it is, I am I am getting closer to Achebe. I, I feel like I hoped, I was getting a bit closer to Achebe and what he was worried about. He, of course, would not be thinking in exactly the same terms. Um, David Graber hadn't written yet. Uh, so, but, but he is registering. Somewhere his imagination is registering some of these same questions. And they're the logical questions if you are um, Again, if you are a citizen of a new, to soon-to-be new state, what's the basis of social trust? Actually, debt, credit and debt, and the word credit, meaning who do you believe, who do you trust, is exactly at the core of social trust. So I, starting from the book, reading about debt, made me think about, well, what is the basis of social trust? And then I was fairly confident, I hope I can convince a reader, that actually that is a concern of Achebe's, is... At this moment, when we are coming to be the citizens of a new state, what exactly is the basis of social trust? Uh,
0: okay. Um and and to say that social trust is also, I think, like the tip of the iceberg in that sense. Because, um, I mean, I'm interested in East African fiction, um, and I was going through a lot of historical works and how uh, slavery and bondages, which also comes up in the, in, in your book, is. Um, through debt. And uh, bondage is not as just slavery, but as so accessing, for example, Indian Ocean networks and gaining money from them. Um, and and this is something I found very interesting is to understand fiction through um, social trust and then through debt, which is an economic thing. Um, um, how do you... Uh, is, is this, for example, uh, more than social trust, this is also bringing in all the problematics of uh, these very contested relations. Or is is this really meant as an analysis of the modern state?
1: No, I I, um, I contrasted two kinds of debt. Now, when you break things down into binaries, it becomes very soon unwieldy. But still, I did have a contrast between two kinds of debt which I think are present, especially in Things Fall Apart, but in Achebe more more generally. Uh, So even if, assume I can convince a reader that that Achebe is very concerned about social relations in the new modern state, hey, there's a comparative aspect. The modern state, actually, I argue the modern state everywhere, but the modern state in Nigeria is is, uh, the result of great violence. It was imposed with great violence. And now we inherit the thing. What does that mean? Uh, so what it, So, there is an inevitable ambivalence about the modern state, I think, among Africans. Maybe among everyone, but among Africans in particular, the, the modern state is, was imposed by violence. And so now we're inheriting it. I'm speaking as, speaking as if I were a chip. Now Nigerians are inheriting it. But what, what is this thing? So partly because of his education, because of his formation, because this is a way of claiming dignity a place in the world, he wants the modern state, but there is a deep ambivalence where he remembers, thinks about other modes of social trust. So I I, I do distinguish between two kinds of debt. The first kind of debt in the pre-colonial mafia, which is the setting of Things Fall Apart, which involves uh, interpersonal relations. And they always involve reciprocity, and they are part of building ties among among individuals and then among village groups, villages and village groups. Uh, they are always based on reciprocity. They are always interpersonal. Uh, and modern debt. And this is a distinction that I'm getting from Graeber, but but I feel it's very useful for like, understanding a So distinction between that kind of reciprocal. Pre-colonial debt and modern debt, which involves uh, one's debt not to others around one, uh, but rather to the state. Uh, so an absolute kind of debt. I owe uh, the state my, uh, my allegiance, my taxes. My, I owe uh, my duty to the state, which is kind of absolute. Um, it involves uh, the state and it involves me as individual. I am measured by how good a... I am at fulfilling this debt to this absolute transcendent duty. Uh, So these are two different kinds of debt. One interpersonal, one between the individual and the state, as opposed to between individuals. And I make that contrast. I say, actually, some of the contradictions one sees in Things Fall Apart. Like, why is a conquo the hero? Uh, Some of the contradictions one sees have to do with this division between two kinds of debt that the novel itself lays out, but that Achebe, and I would think any Nigerian in 1960 thinking about legal questions would face a kind of ambivalence of, yes, I want the modern state. Actually, do I want the modern state? Uh, so that ambivalence is something I, I'm registering. And I'm hoping to convince readers that actually it's it's there. And it's not particular t- to to Nigeria. Now, I am focused on Nigeria, but I think this has larger political repercussions for anyone. So, I would love to know if. Well, I'm hoping from what you just said, but in fact, it resonates a bit with looking at Indian Ocean relations. So uh, that would be that would be um, what I was hoping for. Is even though I'm talking about a particular moment in Nigerian literature, that by acknowledge by bringing in political philosophy, not because. Uh, political philosophy like Locke or Hobbes or so tells us the truth but because they frame it in a certain way so then I could talk about how that is related or not related to what Achebe is doing in order to make it comprehensible and therefore hopefully useful for understanding hey maybe East African literature or maybe even Indian literature that would be that would be uh, wonderful
0: and um, I I felt like you like these economic notions um, you wanted to move away from the capitalist framework and then you um and there are two very interesting transactions if I say one is the bright price and dowry um, and I found them very innovative even though I have reservations being a woman and also coming from a society where it's these are not things of the past um, is this is this an attempt uh to for example in the to look in the works of fiction, bright price and dowry as transactions, and also of reciprocity, of gaining wealth, to move away from the capitalist framework, or is this something I'm understanding again incorrectly?
1: As an alternative to the capitalist framework, and I don't mean an alternative we we that is possible for us to choose or that is um, available to us, but that it is very useful for us to imagine. That's what I wanted. So it is intended as an alternative to the capitalist framework. Um, And so I I can recognize, I think I must puzzle some readers. That is, why don't I um, adopt a Marxist framework? And and I'm not going to say there's much that's attractive about Marxist framework. And I, I hope I am faithful to that Marxist impulse to think of economics and material relations as... As core to everything, um, my hesitation is uh, my yeah. My hesitation is there is also something about um, a common understanding of capitalism that associated with Marxism that means we already know the world. Uh, we already know how things work. Uh, everything is already explained, and we just have to fit the novels into the explanation we already have. And I and I started differently. I started by what needs to be explained in the books, wanting to explain it for myself, finding this emphasis, this uh, this this interest in a, a non-capitalist reciprocal economy, and wondering about that, and and therefore going with that um, i I think that that is a useful way of understanding a chip I, I Uh, Obviously, obviously, it is also very useful to think of, uh, hey, this is the Cold War, there's capitalism and there's communism. Hey, uh, communism is a great appeal for liberation movements all through Africa. Uh, All that is also true. I am just trying to explain something that doesn't get explained, and I hope that it's useful for readers just to think of, well, there is other ways of thinking outside capitalism, and they don't have to be pre-meaning the past, Though that is inevitably how it gets cast, they 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 have a, a utopian dimension to them. Of hey, a reciprocity is a way people negotiating um, with each other. It, it, that interpersonal relationship is a valuable one that we have lost, or no? We yeah. That we have lost. I suppose in modern states, but and useful to remember to 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 think about to hold up again. I don't know if I've answered your question though Mary. Um, um and
0: and um if i if i may i I do support this idea because um, of all the school knowledge I have of French French um uh, was then understood as this reciprocal reciproc <laughs> <I'm> sorry <laughs> as a reciprocal relationship between people i mean this despite- so,
1: so and so just to say. It's useful to take that seriously. Then, instead of thinking of it as as um, the past which we have which is superseded and which strangely survives here, we don't know why. uh, But to think of it, so what was it doing? Why was it? Why why the emphasis in things fall apart on marriage? Uh, On 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 why is that there? It's because it's key, I think, uh, to understanding these reciprocal interpersonal. Uh, relations between people who know each other uh, and yet don't know each other absolutely. They have to negotiate all the time. Yeah.
0: And and very close to uh, this is the question of patriarchy and the patrilineal society, which is then also the question of succession, which is not of land and property, as you said, but also of the state, for example, what comes after the colonial state, who has the legitimacy to say they come and replace it. Um, when we are examining West African literature, how do we complicate this seemingly link between patrilineal structures and modern state, which ideally it's not supposed to be? I mean, ideally, post-colonial state should not be patrilineal um, citizen, if I may say.
1: Um, there's a couple of things there, so let me so. At the end, you're talking about what the post-colonial state should be, and you started by asking about patriarchy, so let me try to remember both in my answer. Um, uh, about what the post-colonial state should be, I, I do think my book has a kind of disruptive feature of saying states actually have always a built-in violence to them. So so uh, there is there is a, a common narrative, which I think is too too narrow which is uh, colonization came and then independence came, but independence was never full independence. There was always still neocolonialism, and so the states never succeeded, implying that the states should have succeeded. Uh, I think it is useful to remember a deep irony of history, which is that it's only colonies that became independent. And so... That there is colonialism built into the state, and there was and the, each of these states were created by violence, and all states maintain themselves by violence, say police jails uh, uh, not the same violence in 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 Canada, where I am uh, citizens do not think of themselves as subject to the violence of the state, no, they are. Uh, And in Africa, they cannot forget that they're subject to the violence of the state. So it's not the same in feel. It's not the same. But I think it's useful to remember that the state is something one can feel ambivalent about, and especially an African, because the state is directly the result of colonialism. Uh, And so it's not... Yeah. So um, when you say what the post-colonial state should be, uh, my book has a kind of... uh, perverse quality of saying actually states are a problem <laughs> so uh uh and maybe that we're expecting them to be something other than they are is 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 a, a narrowness on our part then you ask about gender that is very conscious that if i look at achebe i made a Chebe central so if i look at achebe and then his peers i am talking about an ambivalence about state that's that is very masculinist in the end. Uh, it, it, it uh, and as you point out, whoa, when you talk so glibly about uh, the exchange of brides, it, this touches people. <laughs> so uh, I was very conscious of that. so I, I wanted to explain the exchange of brides. I wonder that why it's not a negligible or, or a simple just uh, um oppression book was something that worked something that made societies work. and then, I wanted to think about well, but what about those for whom uh, it does not work or those for whom who, who are involved as the items of exchange. Um and so I, I I was I wanted very much to put in another book that's the Florin Wappa book that would look uh that actually I think is far more concerned with um uh an alternative to the state than that Chebe is. Uh, sort of ignores the state and is concerned about the Kauri zone, and and is concerned about traders who are all women. Uh, uh, so it is a far more, um, and and it's needed in that. In my book, I need to have this other perspective that challenges the Achebe, so that Achebe doesn't become the representative of everything that that Nigerians are thinking about in 1960. Uh, there is this challenge of well, oh, actually, we don't have to think about that this way at all. We could think about. Um, debt and slavery and, and identity quite differently. And, um, and that's why I wanted the floor and lap i in that.
0: And, um, we have talked a little bit about state, so I think it's only fair that we <laughs> come to it. Um, there are two terms that you have used, um, throughout the book to analyze state, one is the prerogative state and the second is the normative state. Um, could you talk a little bit about these two and tell us why you made these distinctions?
1: Uh, the distinctions are not original to me, but um, uh, but my book is about an ambivalence. Uh, so, what does it mean to become independent to inherit a state? Uh, there is, right now, in the world, it has been for the last um, the last almost hundred years, no alternative to a modern state. That is, uh, there may be other ways of organizing life, um, and they might still exist but they don't have figure on the map of the world. <laughs> so on the map of the world, there's this sort of confirmation of all that can be are states. And we en- endlessly discuss nations, states. And, uh, and I think there is an inherent ambivalence that should be, that I register by using those two terms, um, the prerogative state and the normative state. On the one hand, the state was imposed by violence. It... Uh, it is opposed from the top down. It is colonialism that established the borders, the administration, the basic laws, that all get taken over by the newly independent state. So that's what I'm calling the prerogative state, the state that, that says, this must be, this must be, this is where the borders are, this is where the capital is, this is what the laws are. Uh, it, it mandates, um, and it mandates on the basis of conquest, But it's an ambivalence about the state and an ambivalence about the law that once the law gets established, those who run the state are subject subject themselves to the law too. So they set up the law as something transcendent on the basis of their own superior might, but then it transcends them too. And then it becomes something that uh, the rule of law becomes something that, in fact, everyone can can hold on to as something that could hold leaders to account, for instance. Uh, The rule of law can hold leaders to account, can hold uh, judges to account, can hold the law to account, as it were. Uh, So, and that's the attractive part of the modern state. And I am sure, at least I am sure, and I hope I can convince readers, that there is something attractive about the modern state to, especially at this moment when Nigerians are about to take one over themselves and become citizens of the state. So there is an ideal of the state, probably never realized anywhere, but an ideal of the state that is attractive, that people want, which would have to do with being able to predict relations with, with, with strangers, being able to hold leaders to account, uh, hold the police to account. So there is something attractive in the normative state uh, and holding those two things together the state's always imposed by conquest the rule of law that even applies to rulers those two aspects the prerogative and the normative together is the ambivalence that I'm describing which I think accounts for some of the the ambivalence and the the aesthetic cruxes in in Achebe's books uh, he he could see reasons not to want the state. He could see reasons to want the state, and he's trying to figure that out for himself. And when I said, going back to your first question, he's teaching his readers to be how to be fellow citizens, I do mean he's working this out for himself too. Um,
0: and um this is a question I always ask the people I invite for this podcast. um what do you hope the readers take from this book? I think,
1: uh, I think I hope. I, I run a risk, it seems to me, because I'm talking about a particular literature, so I might only interest people interested in in early Nigerian literature. But I want more. I actually hope that I could convince readers that what is true about early modern, early uh, Nigerian literature has relevance for thinking about African politics. We're thinking about politics we're thinking about economics we're thinking about literature elsewhere so my hope would be um, one could think of African literature as illuminating uh, the world everywhere and literature everywhere uh, it's not it's not some separate province um, that that needs to be thought of uh, in entirely separate terms it is part of the world, and looking at it illuminates the world. Uh, it's not doesn't mean that it's that everywhere is the same place, but it does mean we would we would see things about the world. You would only recognize if you looked at Nigerian literature carefully. Um, that it, like so, I guess my hope would be this would be of relevance to literature scholars from East Africa or from France, but, and and to political philosophers. How to address an audience like that, yeah, I'm not so sure I was successful because as I say, concentrates so much on the particular. But my hope would be that in fact, readers from other adjacent and even not so adjacent fields could find this interesting. Because I think actually African literature should be of interest in everybody. That's what I think. <laughs>
0: um, um, and since we are at the end of the podcast, uh, I'm not sure if I should ask, uh, is it too so, too soon after your book? But what are you uh, working on right now? What can we hope to read from you in the future? Uh, um, quickly,
1: quickly, I'm writing a chapter for a, uh, a a collected a book about the archive of African literature, which is how African literature shares a common idea of of what happened in history. Um, so I'm writing a chapter for that, which is occupying me and. Uh, but I hope to get to another project on tricksters and confidence men, which comes out of this interest in social trust. So I think I would like to look at things that don't, again, too large perhaps, but things that don't get put together often enough, which are traditional trickster tales and modern confidence men tales. And just think about, so what is the basis of social trust that tricksters and confidence men presume in their in their manipulations of others. And what is the basis of social trust, the teller of the tale presumes um, when telling about tricksters or, or modern confidence, man. Um, I think uh, social trust and confidence, that's uh, the next project, but I, I barely, barely started. So I, I'm, I can't say much more than that. Uh,
0: I thank you for taking the time out to talk to me and I wish you the very best for your future projects.
1: Ah uh, thank you very much Bernie thank you for the invitation and it was a pleasure to speak to you